Hello, and welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm the managing editor of Bust Magazine in New York City. My fearless co-host, Callie Watts, is away for the holiday, but I'm here to introduce this special best of episode that brings you all of the very best clips from the Pop-Tarts podcast in 2018. We talked to so many legends, and uh, in this episode, you're going to hear little snippets of some of those great conversations. You'll be hearing clips of our conversations with Amanda Palmer, Ricky Lake, Justine Bateman, Sam Jay, Amber Tamblin, Karuchi Tran, Liz Winstead, Rachel Dratch, and a special never-before-heard clip at the end. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Amanda Palmer is an amazing singer, songwriter, dark cabaret stylist who has been breaking boundaries in music for decades. She uh, became a music industry legend when she raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter for her album Theater is Evil in 2012. I was curious when she came on the Pop-Tarts podcast in December about how she and her equally famous husband, author Neil Gaiman, balance the emotional labor at home with their son, Ash, when they're both such big creative personalities. There was some funny conversation about how Neil and Amanda give each other space when they're doing their creative projects. And Amanda was saying that if she's backstage about to do a show, she'll kick Neil out of her dressing room so he doesn't get her backstage hummus. But when I promoted this episode on social media, Neil Gaiman tweeted out to all of his many, 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 many thousands of followers that um, while the episode was good and what we said was true, Amanda never denied him backstage hummus. And I thought that was adorbs, that that was the one correction that he wanted us to make. You are in a creative power couple with writer Neil Gaiman. And I always just kind of wonder when there's two intensely creative people in a relationship, do you guys have to like put on the schedule who gets to be the diva that day? <laughs> yes. Like, who, like how, do, how do you negotiate big creative personalities within a couple and within a, a small family? We have a diva app. And we, just, we, we, check it, we check it every morning. <laughs> Saturday um, morning is mine. I joke about that, but it's very true. Um, outside the domestic sphere, when when I'm in Neil world, like I'm at an event that Neil is doing, or I'm at a book signing, or I'm at one of Neil's events, or you know what have you, that's one thing. And when Neil is in my world, it's another. And whoever's running the show gets to play the diva card. Yeah, and it's one of the nice things about being in a relationship with him, because there's just no anger about it. I, you know, if I look at him and it's a book signing and he's totally unavailable to me, my ego is not crushed. I really get it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's the same thing if he comes to a Dresden Dolls show and I'm just like, get the fuck out of my dressing room and don't take my hummus. (laughs) Like, go away. Don't take my hummus. (laughs) He gets it. Now being parents together is like, it's like yet another wheel on a very toppling bus. Like, we've just had to figure out how to trade off who's working, who gets to play the diva card, who's the main parent right now, how do we split up these tasks, mm-hmm. who gets to decide, who gets the final word. And it's it's like any other relationship. It's just this constant bungling dance of trying to get it mostly right and then being very, very forgiving when we, you know, wind up punching each other in the face. There's a lot of talk recently about emotional labor, both in and out of the home. <laughs> and like, you're both famouses. You're, you both have big careers and big plans and lots going on. And you're both parents. And from what I understand, you're both feminists. Um, how does that chore wheel shake out <laughs> oh, in the emotional labor department um, when things, if you believe yeah. the hype, just tend to get dumped on the woman more than the man? Um, I love that you've asked me this question because no one ever asks me that. It's a, <laughs> and it's a very specific question. It's a really good relationship question. I mean, when I got when I first got together with Neil – my my friend Casey Long, I was going on a walk with her in Boston, and she she was guffawing at the fact that I was dating Neil Gaiman. And I said, why? And she said, because you're the queen of feelings. <laughs> and he is the king of dreams. 
And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, oh but it like it, it has been difficult. Yeah. Um, but I also think you always have to meet people where they are. I feel like I've I've been able to draw Neil out of dream world a, a lot more than he bargained for. <laughs> mm. But I also think subconsciously he didn't pick me by accident. You know, I didn't I didn't show him some side of myself that you guys aren't seeing to lure him into my spider web of emotional, <laughs> you know, spider web of emotion. Uh, <laughs> he picked, you know, he picked me as a partner. I picked him. We knew what we were getting. I knew that I was getting a guy who was, you know, not keen on sitting around all day and talking about his emotions. And he knew he was getting like, I'm going to get on stage naked and talk to you about my abortion lady. Like, (laughs) that's who we were 10 years ago. Uh And, um, And we, you know, we've really tried to respect and appreciate the the talents and the lacks that each of us have. Neil is really good at other kinds of adulting that I'm not great at. Um, and he's really good at running certain aspects of the household. Um, you know, and I, I am the one who sends him texts saying like, X has emotionally happened to person Y. You need to Z. And he ah. goes, I'm going to listen to my wife. What a wise idea. <laughs> I'm going to send flowers and a kind note. And I go, good, you're learning. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that I drive him crazy in equal measure in other departments because he speaks entire languages that I do not speak. For instance, I don't speak nerd or comic. (laughs) He gets really sad about that and feels really lonely because he can't, you know, it's not, I don't want to say that it's not that he can't impress me, but he can't share those aspects of his life with me. You know, the day I met Neil, I also met Stan Lee Mm -hmm. because Neil pointed him out across the dressing room and said, that's Stan Lee. (laughs) And I said, who's Stan Lee? Stan Lee who? And he said, that's Stan Lee. And I said, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and he was just like, you should have just seen his face. He was like, you're a human being. How could you not know who Stan Lee is? But I didn't grow up with comics. I didn't grow up reading fantasy and sci-fi. Like, I came out of a different world. And so we, you know, we try to just take joy in the ability that we have to educate one another about what we didn't come equipped with. When actress, talk show host, and producer Ricky Lake started making the rounds recently doing interviews for her latest film, Weed the People, I was super excited to speak with her for Pop-Tarts. Of course, I wanted to help her promote an important film that bolsters the argument for marijuana legislation, but what I really wanted to talk to her about was two things. One, my deep and abiding love for her because uh, Hairspray changed my life and she changed my life by being in Hairspray, number one. And number two, I really wanted to talk with her about another issue close to both of our hearts, which is destigmatizing the mental illness known as bipolar disorder. Ricky Lake had a partner for five years who struggled with bipolar disorder. He is the love of her life. His name is Christian Evans. When he committed suicide in 2017, it was truly devastating she really tried they tried as a couple everything that they possibly could to ameliorate his symptoms stemming from bipolar disorder and in the end it just wasn't enough to save him and Ricky went on something of a crusade after that in the press to really talk about her loss and to talk about the issues surrounding bipolar disorder that took her partner's life. I'm a woman who has been in a wonderful but not always easy relationship with a man who has bipolar disorder for 14 years. And I was really super inspired by Ricky Lake's willingness to turn her personal tragedy into an opportunity to share resources and information about this issue. So I took a moment during our interview to thank her for her candor and to ask her about her healing process. My my life partner is bipolar, mm-hmm. and I've been in that relationship for 14 years. Wow. And so when I saw you come out the way that you did, I first of all, I'm, I gave you just like – 
all my love and condolences that you lost your husband to suicide after a long battle with bipolar disorder. And it hasn't even been a year, right? It's been 20 months. And uh, okay, so it has been. Uh, You know, there's a lot of ways that, you know, people in the public eye can respond when something like that happens in their lives. And the, the fact that you in the midst of like your mourning came forward and said like mm. my partner had bipolar disorder and mm. like this is what it is and like mm-hmm. let's clear the shame away from it and there's help out there and there's lots of different kinds of help that you can have. The, the fact that um, you took such a personal devastating event in your life and were you able to use your platform to to shed light on it for so many people. I just found it astonishing Mm, and so moving. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, like I I wouldn't trade my partner for anything through the ups and the downs, but there's been, you know, like close people in my life who would be like, why would you sign up for that? Like like when you got together with that person, like Mm. you knew that he was bipolar, like why would you stay with someone when you knew that they were bipolar? And like it, like he's, a magical gift to me that I'm thankful Mm -hmm. for every day. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the fact that you were able to bring some dimensionality Mm -hmm. to a condition that's really so stigmatized and is so hidden Mm -hmm. was just is so amazing. I'm sure you helped so many people. I'm sorry to bring up something that's so tender, but I, I respect what you did so much. Thank you. And as far as being open about what I went through with losing him, loving him and losing him, I don't know any other way to be. Like, I've always been an open book, mm-hmm. with, you know, since the beginning of my career. I mean, I, I don't know how to be guarded, you know, uh-huh. and it's gotten me in trouble in, in, in some ways. And in other ways, it's like, it's part of my truth, you know, it's our story. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I think now I've come to like, I want to help others. I want other people to understand what it's like mm-hmm. to love some, to, to, for, for someone to be suffering with these, these mental illnesses and also for the people, the loved ones that suffer alongside them. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it was really, um, and I didn't understand what bipolar was. When he told me we met and mm-hmm. got together and fell in love, he, he told me he'd been diagnosed bipolar. And I was like, oh, yeah, and I'm a control freak. I totally, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we all have our <laughs> I shit, know you know. Either. I didn't know what a manic episode looked like. Um, I didn't see it coming, you know, I, I couldn't have stopped it. I mean, and, and that's what the frustrating thing, because I have been speaking publicly, and I do think it's important that we ch- we get rid of the stigma. And I'm involved yeah. with a group called Bring Change to Mind, which is a beautiful organization that is all about that. Glenn Close started it because her, her sister's schizophrenic and bipolar, and she was very close to Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 so, so important. But um, but for me, it was so frustrating because I, I did have all the resources. I did have all the money to get him the help. And we did do everything for him. And mm-hmm. it, it just... I couldn't save him, you know, and um, and I just have to I have to live with that. And I, but I know I did everything I could, and I know right. I mean I'm very I'm very resolved in it. Ha- this happened the way it was supposed to, and that you know, in the end, when he did take his life, we we had closure. We never stopped loving each other. And it's confusing for people that don't that didn't know us. We weren't legally married at the end because after his first manic episode, he was so destructive and blo- like spending all this money and giving it all away to charity, like giving mm-hmm. all of it. You know, yeah. I had to sort of protect myself and do. And we stayed together as a couple for two mm-hmm. more years, so we were together in the end, even though we weren't actually. You know, it's 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 right. confusing, but um, but all in all, like. I, I think I'm supposed to be the vessel and 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 help others through through my story. You know, I think he would want that. Mm-hmm. Do are you planning anything for the future in terms of filmmaking in that? I arena? think about that. I don't know what. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've thought about doing a documentary. I've thought, thought about having a feature about him because his story is so. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, I know it's my life, but Christian, you know, with bipolar and with many of these mental illnesses, it's like genius and madness mm-hmm. going hand in hand. You know, it's and it's yeah. it's like he was both. I mean, he yeah. was, and and bipolar people are the most charismatic, so the sparkly. most like like just they're they're the special ones. And in certain cultures, you know, when they when they see someone who's mentally ill, they they're they're celebrating them because they're the gifted ones. They're the, mm-hmm. the truly special ones. And so, you know. I don't know. I just learned. I've learned. I've learned so much through this process. And he was truly of all the things that have happened to me, my career, my my family, my children, all the amazing things. 
he's I think he's the greatest thing that that happened to me in my life like he opened me up he exposed me to so much he's I mean I've really evolved to to a much better me having had him loved him and lost him Mm. Actor, writer, producer, director Justine Bateman is best known as Mallory from the 80s sitcom Family Ties. She came on the Pop-Tarts podcast to talk about her new book, which was called Fame, The Hijacking of Reality, which was not quite a memoir, but it was a nonfiction account of the fuckery surrounding fame. Just a few days before Justine Bateman came on the podcast, Taylor Swift came out on Instagram supporting Democrats in the upcoming November election, and she urged her 112 million followers to register to vote. She had been tight-lipped about her political leanings up until that point, but she decided to speak out about who she was supporting in the election, and as a result, 65,000 new voter registrations came pouring in in the 24 hours since her post went live. So because this is such a fame-centric story, I brought her name up to Justine, and I wanted to know how she felt the pressure young famous women feel to be everything to everyone affected things like politics. Just this week that we're recording this, Taylor Swift made headlines for breaking her silence about her political beliefs and encouraging her millions of young fans to register to vote. What responsibility do you think young famous women have today to be activists? And are you tempted to leverage your fame for political reasons also? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know that there's a responsibility for it. I don't think anybody who's I mean, anybody who's well-known for uh, some talent they have, I mean, I would think you're responsible to your own gifts. You're res- I mean, I do think you're responsible to be a hard worker and to um, do the best job you can. Mm-hmm. This is my personal opinion. But as far as the rest of it, I don't think anybody has, I don't think any singer or athlete or anybody has any responsibility to do it. But if they want to, as a citizen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm completely all for it. I mean, no matter what they want to say. And if people say, you know, shut up, you dumb fucking actress, you know, stop <laughs> stop talking politics, which mm-hmm. is what you see often online, people yeah. saying. Um, I would just say, well, now, wait a minute. There's, there's not just one participant here. Right. And that's the thing about fame, right? And that's a lot of what I write about in the book. We're all participating in this. I mean, Taylor Swift isn't making sure that everybody's, you know, she's not she's not going door to door making sure everybody's listening to her. She's not sending out flyers. She's not making this huge effort to make sure to demand that everybody listen to her. Because she has 100 million followers on Instagram, I think, who want to hear what she mm-hmm. has to say. So anybody who doesn't want to hear what she has to say. Exactly. Just don't follow her. Don't listen to it. And if you're going to be resentful or angry that 100 million people are listening to her, well, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, right. that's their free will. They can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So it's Are you good politically to be, motivated at all? Well, I'm, as a citizen, I mean, I, you know, on my Twitter account, I, I definitely, you know, call out what I think as a citizen, as a 52-year-old American citizen, thinks is bullshit and, and not bullshit. I mean, I definitely do that. I... You know, I'm educated. I I try to be informed about what I'm talking about, but not because I feel like I have some responsibility because I have a name, but just because that's the kind of person I am. Yeah. Anyway, that's just that's just for me. But what mm-hmm. do you guys think? I'm 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 pretty much with you on that. I mean, I feel personally as just a woman that speaking out right now is really important to me. But I don't think anybody else has an obligation to do anything. Like, if you are passionate about something, then you should speak about it, and no one should tell you to shut up and not play you know like you're a football player you should just play football or whatever I think that's bullshit even if you don't agree with someone yeah but I don't think anybody especially if you don't feel like passionate about it you should not be forced to make an opinion about something yeah I agree I I have a a real um I don't know if it's an axe to grind exactly, but I feel like women's rights are literally under attack like mm. so much. And I don't maybe I should hold all people, men and women to the same standard. And it's like its own kind of sexism that I don't. But I feel like <laughs> women are like we're having 
our rights rolled back, like right from mm. under us. And that if you are a woman in this country with a significant platform and you're not using it to like help us get those rights back, like who fucking needs you, man? <laughs> like I, I, but maybe that's just born from my own primal terror. But then you also have to be willing to let the and Coulters and all of them use their voice as much as they want. So it goes, you know, not everybody agrees with You know, I believe in the First Amendment and everybody can, I don't expect everybody to agree with me, but if you are a woman with a significant platform and you do agree with me, <laughs> exactly, and, you're that's not, the thing. and you're not like out there shaking the trees, then I want to know why. Right. But there's... <sighs> But Does I, it feel uh, like uh, like there's an opportunity right now? There's a like the like the door's been open. There's sort of a, a vacuum right now, and if they do, and it's like you just really want them to take advantage of this moment. I think so because there's you know with with Taylor Swift in particular, she's a country music artist. Mm. Like if I have no doubt that for the entirety of her career, people are like. If you talk about politics, you will lose millions of dollars. Mm, you yeah. know, like either people will agree with you or you don't. Yeah, and in this the Dixie, climate, no. yeah, the yeah. Dixie chicks got I mean, boycotted. Was, oh, wow. They That's almost huge. got driven out of the industry. Well, they still have not been able to spring back from that fully at all. Isn't that remarkable? And that was yeah. that was like in a different era from what we're in now. If, if they'd done it now, they would have they would have been huge. Been yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so in I a different way. I think that there were very real people protecting her and her career saying don't talk about it. Um, and it's it's definitely a brave thing that she's like, all right, whatever, fuck it. It's Things are too crazy now. Like, I have to speak up. Sam Jay is a comedy writer whose career moves in 2018 would be impressive by any standard. She got a job writing for Saturday Night Live. She released a half-hour special on Comedy Central. She was on Netflix's The Comedy Lineup, and she just put out this amazing stand-up album called Donna's Daughter that I really recommend. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we ask all of our guests if they are feminists. And Sam Jay was actually the first person we had on who said no. And the conversation we had around why she said no and why she did not identify as a feminist was a really interesting one. I feel like all women should be feminists because all women should want the same rights and protections under the law as everybody else. I understand that the word has stigma. I take it upon myself personally to try to clear some of that stigma away when I speak with people who do not identify as feminists. But I... Didn't I went into the conversation with Sam Jay thinking it must just be a matter of semantics, but really what was happening was that Sam Jay was talking to self-identified feminists who had ideas about feminism that she just simply did not agree with. And that's different than stigma over a word. And I really came to understand how far feminism still has to go to not alienate people. We can't just make it a one-size-fits-all monolith. It really has to be a lot more open and flexible. I had a really good time talking to Sam about it. I thought she made some good points. Sam J., are you a feminist? No. Why not? Shook. 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 Oh. <laughs> In a sense... Because I don't, I don't understand any of this stuff sometimes. I am definitely pro-women and pro-women's rights because I'm a woman. And I just I don't see how I could not be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But in this sense where I feel like a need to claim a thing, no. I will say that the textbook definition of feminism, which I return to again and again, is believing that women and men deserve the same rights in society. But I believe that everybody does. Yeah, well then, because you can believe all that, so you're still a feminist, and you're also, like, you could be more than one hat. Yeah, I mean, if you want to define it, I guess, sure. You can have five hats. But I'm just saying, like, I don't walk out in the world and identify as that, if I'm being honest. You're not going to wear the T-shirt. I'm not going to wear the T-shirt. If it was like, there's a feminist rally down the street, I wouldn't be like, I need to go to that because I am a feminist. No, I don't don't feel drawn in that way. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to throw you out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I personally I just feel that that 
women who don't identify as feminists probably don't because of the baggage that the word has taken on over time. And it's also sometimes when you talk to women who are feminists, and I I just strongly disagree with some of their ideals. I was in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and this woman was talking to her friend, and she was talking about one of her friends, and she was was like, it was all a group of women, so she assumed we were all going to agree, which already bothers me. I'm a bit of a Mm -hmm. contrarian, and I don't like that in any setting. Don't Mm -hmm. assume because we're all black we're going to have the same idea about something, don't assume because we're all all gay. It just irritates me. But (laughs) she was sitting there, and she was saying how her friend had got fired from her law firm for being pregnant and that how she's going to sue because they basically were like, well, you're pregnant, so you can't do the job and da, da, da. So I'm listening. I'm like, okay, well, that's messed up. But then she continues the story. She's like, well, the woman had gotten pregnant. The woman had had the child. And then a couple months later, I got pregnant again. So she had already got the leave. She had done whatever. And then after that leave, she came back to work. She was at work for a few months and got pregnant again. And then the law firm was like, well, hey, we kind of need someone that's going to be here and you're not going to be here. So we're going to have to find someone else. And she was like, well, that's, you know, wrong. And I was like, well, I don't know if I think that's 100%. One time, I understand. But at some point, they do need someone to do the job. Do they not? They're a business. That's they a have to one. function and run. It is true. And at some point, you made a decision. You chose that you wanted to do this. Why do they have to carry the weight of your decision? So sometimes I'm like, ah, I don't know. But also, like you said, that you don't have to agree with everyone who's black or everyone that's gay. You don't have to believe that everything that a certain feminist says to also right. believe in feminism. Exactly. Because there's some people that will say stuff and I'm like, eh. I'm a bit looser than that, you know? Yeah. Like Right. And it was kind of like levels. men are bad and these men at this law firm are bad and they don't respect women. And I was just like, I don't know if that's necessarily where this is coming from. Or, or are they just business people who need to run a business at some point? It makes me wonder, though, for example, someone's helping her make that baby. She's not making it on her own. Like, if that person was a man... Was that man getting the same static at his job because he just had a baby and then he well, just had another one? They barely ever give men leave. leave. They won't even give like they, they won't never give men leave. You gotta really be men get in like a, nice a week spot or two. <laughs> so it's probably not even on on their radar or blip that this. So then the issue is paid family leave for hundred percent. Yeah, but that's kind of always where my mind goes. Right. 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 The let's deal with the issue and not attack the people right because that is the issue paid family leave for everybody proper systems for people who want to have children to be able to take care of their children because children have two parents right but there's also either one most children but there's also like human responsibility right like i have a career right now if i decide to go have a baby that career goes on pause snl will hire a new writer Mm -hmm. comedy specials will come out i have to decide what is it that I want to do? Mm-hmm. Like the Heat Cardi guy. So you have to make a decision. Now, if you're in a leadership position at your job, you have one baby and you know, oh, I want to have a second baby, they might have to move on without you. But there do you think choice. that Saturday Night Live should work with you if you want to have a kid and come back? No. No, I do not. Are you because that show has to come on every Saturday. Right, <laughs> like they have a responsibility to something too, just as much as I have a responsibility. To like something. I've thought about this before. If I ever have a kid, which eventually I want to with Camillo, there's only what six of us. Right, if we I work go, in an office of six people. If I go on f- paid leave, they've never had besides the boss someone who's had a kid that's full staff. Like, what the fuck do you think will happen in the office? Do you think that there's going to be like, yeah, take six months off? At the, the same time, do my job? can you work at a it. feminist magazine and not get paid leave? Well, since I've been there so long, I know rationally what the impact will be if I do. Right. That's what I'm saying. Rationally what the impact is, right? Because the way we write, we write homogeneously. So now if I'm gone for six months, they got to slide someone in. They got to f- figure out a new camp. There's just things that have need to, negotiate. to happen. You know, I'd have to be like, I can come in maybe two times a week. Something. And then Camilla will have to take off a couple of days. We'll have to figure out a plan because otherwise I don't expect them to keep my position and pay me when they can barely afford to just pay me. Right. Well, I've worked there for 17 years. This issue has never come up because they pay us so little that none of us can afford to have a kid. So we've never. (laughs) Well, that's the other way to go about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
going back to the original question, I think it's important that we can have discussions like we're having about mm-hmm. the paid family leave and other things, and we can all still legitimately be feminists if we want to claim the title because we believe that we should be able to own property. We should be able to be paid the same wage as someone doing the same job. We should have equal rights and privileges in the society because literally we still do not. There is no equal rights amendment. There is nothing legislatively protecting us as a class. So I think that... uh, And in that regard, I'm 100% a feminist. I think I'm wary about claiming it because, especially because I'm an artist, I don't want people to have expectations of what my art's supposed to do Mm -hmm. because now I'm a thing. And so now I'm always supposed to think a thing and always supposed to defend a thing. And I've always been wary of that as an artist. I I, I also say like, like, I don't want people to expect me to always defend black things. You know what I mean? Like I just want the freedom Mm -hmm. as an artist to be myself. Amber Tamblin is an actor, writer, director, and activist, but she's also a poetry columnist for Bust Magazine. So we knew it would only be a matter of time before she came on the Pop-Tarts podcast since she is such a super special friend of Bust. I guess she's most famous for her roles in General Hospital and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and Joan of Arcadia. But most recently, uh, she was on a whirlwind publicity tour promoting her novel, Any Man. And uh, we also really wanted to talk with her about the Time's Up movement because she was very instrumental in helping get that movement off the ground. By all measures, Time's Up is a huge success, raising over $30 million and recruiting hundreds of volunteer lawyers to advocate for gender parity in a variety of workforces. But the media seems to have stopped covering Me Too and Time's Up lately thanks to the crazy news cycle coming out of the White House. So I wanted to ask Amber, what is your perspective from the inside? What strides have we made and what work is there still left to do? And this is what she had to say. You're also a true Hollywood insider since birth. So I'm wondering if, you know, based on your insider status, are things changing for women in Hollywood, in entertainment, in the world are is anything better as a result are we still waiting for the cash and prizes of all of this hard work what is what is your perspective from the trenches of what we've managed to accomplish i feel like we've all felt like we've been soaking in our collective anger as you say and you have this amazing literary character who seems to be the embodiment of that first crashing wave of the me too movement where we've just been like marinating in each other's pain and rejoicing in the fact that like all of these buried stories are now just shooting out of the ground like like oil, like geysers of black gold anguish and despair. What is your perspective on the inside of all of these movements, including Hollywood? What is the state of our female union? So I think that the the state of the female union, which I really love, and I think that's a sidebar podcast we should all do. <laughs> So I'll reapproach you with that idea later. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a term that we use within Time's Up and that I've really loved, which is, um, you know, we're building a plane as we're flying it. That's the reality of any movement. You know, this thing torpedoed out of nowhere. It, it began because a lot of women, not just Hollywood women, there's there's a real misunderstanding about that perpetuated by... You know, some people that I love, but they have um, put a lot of information out there making it seem like it's just run by Hollywood actresses and it could not be further than the truth. The the Hollywood actresses have been um, instrumental in helping to amplify the message and get it out there. But we are, Time's Up consists of women across industries, truly, um, and also across ethnicities. This is, this is the most inclusive experience I have ever had in my entire life. And... You know, it was, I think, last year that I decided that I would no longer do um, interviews or uh, press, um, sit-down-wise anyway, or even conferences, panels, you know, women in power, unless it was, you know, 50-50. So unless there was real representation sitting alongside me, I don't feel comfortable doing it anymore. And the experience working within Time's Up, and that's a real motto for us, is like, you weren't. if you want to go get interviewed and talk about it, you have to have, you know, you have to be part of a pair and there has to be representation in that room it cannot just be you a white lady by yourself talking about power that's not the way it works and to me that was kind of like a 
I had a sigh and a real sense of freedom of like, oh, I think I've wanted this. And I didn't know that it was okay to say this is the line and this is the new rule. And we are bringing these other women alongside us. We're bringing them with us and we're not equivocating. You know, there's no there's no wavering on that on that line. So, you know, the work is hard. It's diligent. I think the the it's been absolutely profound what the Legal Defense Fund has done, raising over 30 million dollars and working on over, we had thousands and thousands of women, uh, you know, and some men apply. Um, and, and they're working on over 300 cases and, you know, of, of varying backgrounds from the restaurant industry to, um, to just so many more. And to me, that's, that is action-based. And that, what is most important to me is that I, I can see that it's going to be a long run. It's going to be a long haul. But that at least something is happening. The fact that we're sitting here right now even talking about it means that something is happening. And Hollywood is changed forever. Even if we don't get the things that we want right away, it is changed. There are still a lot of problems. Someday when I write a memoir, I will tell you, you will know what this last year has been like for me on the inside has been insane. And the pushback from so many men who run studios, who are agents, who are you know, who are still in the business and who are really, frankly, scared um, is is pretty, it's not shocking, but it's pretty disappointing. But at the same time, you also have women who are really scared because men are going, wait a minute, my opinion doesn't matter. I'm confused. And women are going, wait a minute, my opinion matters. I'm confused. And so you've got a real situation where there's, you know, the foundation has been struck and ripped open and, and people are are wobbly they're like trying to find their ground right now they're trying to figure that out and so to me it's important that's why I keep calling this a revolution I refuse to call it a a movement Mm -hmm. because it's important to remember that during revolutions a lot of crazy shit happens (laughs) and yes there are um you know uh a lot of things happen and that it really it moves and sometimes we can't control it the way in which it moves and and the stories move and the change moves and the action moves and we need to be able to hold space for all of it in a big picture meaning no one can say this is what it has to be not one person not me not anybody it's important to keep saying how can this thing keep growing how can it keep going and how can we definitely put aside any language that's suggesting that we've gone too far because by the way we don't ever talk about that with climate change. Do you ever hear anybody say we've gone too far? Ta- well, but you, but even on our side, on yeah. liberal sides, do you hear people saying it's gone too far? Yeah, not on climate change, but when it comes to women, to the bodies of women, we've gone too far. When I booked model and actress Karuchi Tran on Pop-Tarts to promote her film The Honor List and the second season of her TNT show Claws, I had a dilemma. She's an emerging talent. She's making a name for herself in female-focused ensemble projects. I genuinely enjoy her work, and I have no doubt that our listeners are into her as well. But as much as I wanted to keep my questions focused only on her professional life, I wouldn't have been doing my job as an interviewer if I ignored the piece of her story that launched her entire career, which was her high-profile relationship with R&B singer Chris Brown. I first heard Karuchi Tran's name, I would say, in 2010. It was right after Chris Brown got in all that trouble for beating up Rihanna. And then everyone was like, hey, he has this other girlfriend, and she's a model, and here she is, and here's all these paparazzi photos of her. And she was always in a million photos and a million tabloids, but never saying anything. We only just saw her face. And they were together for five years until... They had a very high-profile breakup, Karuchi and Chris Brown, that ended in a restraining order. She had to testify in court that he was abusive to her. And she emerged out of that whole second tabloid frenzy to establish herself as an actor in Claws and in her movie The Honor List, which she was promoting in May when she came on the podcast. Of course, we wanted to focus on her work, but we really needed to talk about her relationship with Chris Brown as well. And she was she was really friendly and surprisingly open about it. And I'm glad that we got to talk to her about it. Callie and I were just talking on the way over here that like if we had a bad breakup 
years ago. And that's what people talked about when they talked to us about whatever it is that we were doing, moving on with our lives. Like, we would feel some type of way about that. <laughs> and so... Welcome to my life! <laughs> how do you... Like, how do you manage it how i mean that it's a fact and it's out there in the world for everyone to know and comment on but it's actually your personal private life yeah it's both yeah i mean it it's it is what it is i can't run from it i can't take an you know backspace or take an eraser yeah. and erase it you know it's it it is what it is and i i can only grow from here and just you know, looking at myself now and the person that the woman and the person that I am, I'm so much better than I was. I'm so much more confident. I'm so much more sure about what I want and what I don't want. And unfortunately, I had to go through those situations to to become who I am today. Um, and I wouldn't change anything about it, you know, because I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't yeah. go through those situations. And that's just situations, period, in my life. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's it's a great story of, of the glow up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like I at least I can look back and say, Woo, like at least I got through that. I'm not dealing with that shit no more, yeah. you know? So For sure. Yeah. And I for one am so happy that you're not just that face and all of those tabloid paparazzi pictures like there's actually a voice to go with the face now yeah i had to find my personality (laughs) and a a, like a a true talent yeah and i was i was scared to 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 be i was i was so in my shell and afraid to be who i uh, who i am i even look at myself sometimes like okay okay girl you got some personality and and that's just because i've been hiding for so much and i was just scared to let the world know who i really am because it's it's a scary thing. The yeah. world is a scary place, you know, especially yeah. with social media. It's like, oh, my God, are they going to like me or they're not going to like me? Now it's like, I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Like, whatever. This is who I am. I'm happy. And that's it. Blow it up. I love it. Liz Winstead is known as a comedian and an author and an activist. She co-created The Daily Show. She went on to... Uh, co-found Lady Parts Justice League, which is a group of comedians and feminists who combat sexism with comedy. Liz and her Lady Parts Justice League team were about to go on their second Vagical Mystery tour around the country, raising awareness and funds for abortion clinics in need. Just a few days before Liz uh, came to record the podcast, Roseanne's new reboot of Roseanne was canceled amid some crazy racist tweeting. And Liz had a lot to say about that because she and Roseanne were friends from way back in the day. And so it was really helpful for us to process what was going on with Roseanne in the media frenzy that came along after her show got canceled Here at Bust, we also had a close relationship with Roseanne for a time. She was our advice columnist from 2012 to 2013. And so we were really shaken by the events that precipitated her show getting canceled as well. So we definitely wanted to talk to Liz about that and to compare notes about what happened to Roseanne. So I have a very long sorted history with Roseanne. I write a lot about it in my book. So I, when I was coming up as a stand-up comic in Minneapolis, Roseanne was living in Denver and she would come to work in Minneapolis four times a year. And she always insisted that I or another woman opened for her. Amazing. She was an incredibly supportive feminist. Like she was my friend for a long time and she was shared my outrage. She was really open on many levels, you know, open about, you know, a lot of stuff and was always supportive of women. And so as I watched Roseanne, I don't know where the information started happening and where the turn started happening, but she had said some really shitty things to me on Twitter, just about my feminism and about things that I was like, why are you like, we were really good friends. Like, I don't understand. Um, And she just, the evolution of Roseanne or the devolution of Roseanne's, um, philosophies is heartbreaking to me too because I can say for sure without question the Roseanne that I met who helped me out starting in the late 1980s 
was not a racist at all. And her show was groundbreaking. And I loved her show. And I feel like I don't know what happened. I don't know where she's at. But like, get help because it's ugly. Mm -hmm. And it's inexcusable. And, you know, I'm wrestling with, um, honestly, I'm wrestling with people who went and signed on to do this show anyway. And like, we're all applauding ABC for canceling it, which yes, absolutely. But I don't know, I kind of feel like I have turned down shows that and, and gigs that would have made me a shit ton of money because I didn't like the underpinnings of what was going on behind it. And at some point, you have to say to yourself, is me making a whole lot of money? How do I justify my role in perpetuating white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah, I just, I can't, true. I can't not say that. I mean, I just, for me, it's like, and people can get mad at me. And like, I read what Sarah Gilbert wrote and it was just weird. And I just feel like you all took a job working for somebody who you didn't care that they were transphobic and really brutal towards trans women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you didn't care about the Islamophobia before this. You didn't care that she also called Susan Rice an ape many years ago. Like her Twitter feed and who she has been since my guests went bust parted ways and when all that started mm-hmm. happening uh-huh. was very real and very public. And yeah. so all of that was somehow overlooked. And this all of a sudden, my economic insecurity Trump voter person um, needed a show. And even the even when they rebooted the show, it was sort of a lot of cockamamie things about it that didn't make like it didn't add up. First of all, they have the same couch. Yeah. Like get a new couch. You had a, you, this has been <laughs> since the 90s. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, what? And they didn't address like 9-11 happened between when Roseanne was off and now um, like m- monumental things happened between the Roseanne that went off the air and this Roseanne now. I guess they addressed it by Roseanne being scared of her Muslim neighbors. I mean, I mean like, right. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's the whole thing. It's like, oh, you have a genderqueer kid and you're fine with that? Like, what? Like that. And so I'm trying to figure out there didn't seem to be much complexity behind this person that they were trying to say, this isn't the racist Trump voter. This is the economically insecure Trump voter. And it's like, yeah. no, it's not. Rachel Dratch is a comedy legend. I love her so much from Saturday Night Live. She was Debbie Downer. She was the fucking best on that show. Um, But then she was also on a ton of other cool stuff. She made an amazing movie called Spring Breakdown that Callie and I are obsessed with. She was on 30 Rock a lot. And she just showed up on a lot of different sitcoms sort of periodically. But I always wanted to see more from her. And she had a lot to say about being pigeonholed as the weird friend. Um, or the pet troll of the weird friend, or Sandy, 80, unattractive. In her words, uh, those were the kind of jobs that she was being offered for a long time after Saturday Night Live, and she really had to reestablish herself. And I just thought that there was so much sexism at play in terms of her career, because she's one of the funniest people alive, in my opinion. She always makes me laugh. And the fact that there's this weird Hollywood dude-centric system that says that you can only look a certain way to get a part in a movie or a TV show has kept the dratch from me for too long. And I'm glad that she's finally overcome it, um, that people are recognizing her for the amazing comedy stylist that she is. And in this clip, we talked to her all about that. You wrote a book. I did. In 2012, yes. called A Girl Walks Into a Bar. Yeah. Which I found very illuminating. It's always such a gift when you interview someone who's written a book. It's like, hallelujah. <laughs> um, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you said some stuff that was very interesting to me in that book. Right in the beginning, you said, these are pretty much the only parts I've oh, been God, offered this, yeah. since I've been off Saturday Night Okay, Live. this has changed since this, though. Okay. This is what's a problem about writing a book. Writing a book. Is you think that this is how... It's it's like writing your diary. 
And then it's out there, but it's my diary from 2012. Right, which is so, so I, long ago. And I have, like, different feelings about some of these things. But at the time, yes, go on. Okay, so disclaimer. <laughs> well, this is what the reality was what, in 2012. Like, okay, go ahead. Well, it's oh. nice to know things have changed. Like, that's, that's true. An but this is what it was like. Is there like, backwards? It was like this It was like this. Lesbians, secretaries, sometimes secretaries who are lesbians. Yes usually much older than I am in real life, usually about 100 to 200 pounds more than I am in real life. I thought you were going to say 100 to 200 years older. Years older. (laughs) Right. I am offered solely parts that I refer to as the unfuckables. And of course, this makes me furious for many, many reasons. That this was your reality, even if it's not anymore. Okay. It was the reality. It shifted somehow, but it lasted like that for about, I don't know, maybe four years or something after SNL. So that's why I thought like, this is how it is now. But it was also, see, okay, I get really nervous talking about this. And the reason is because whenever I talk about this, some other online thing picks up one line I said, uh-huh. and then I become the poster child for this again. Right. And I hate, like, feeding the flames of this. I yeah. understand. So I speak about this with great trepidation. We will but, um, speak not- about it carefully. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but no, that's how, like, after I was done with SNL, Literally, like, every part I would get offered, whatever, audition, just audition, Uh um, was a part like that. And then it was just kind of like a rude awakening because on SNL, like, you play anything. Like, the world of sketch, you play anything, you know? Right. And and also, like, before that, Second City, you play any part. And then it was just more like, welcome to Hollywood. It was like, you know, a whole different beast than it had been. So that was kind of surprising to me. But it was true, like, you know, I... I would usually, like, go out for, like, the weird friend, you know? But mm-hmm. then I wasn't even going with the weird friend. I was, like, the <laughs> the pet troll of the weird friend. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, don't everyone say that I called myself a troll. I am not calling myself a troll. <laughs> uh, because that happened, too. Like, I've said something, like, oh, I usually play, like, in my book, I said, like, you know, woodland creatures or whatever. And then, like, I think I said trolls, but I didn't mean, like, ugly trolls, but then that's how somebody, Mm -hmm. whatever. Anyway, I just get very feared of, I fear the pull quote more than, like, heights and spiders. Right. So, and that can be my pull quote. I fear the pull quote more than heights and spiders. This is (laughs) podcasting, no pull quotes. No, but you know what I mean, though. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. This final clip is something so special that we've been holding aside wanting to air. It didn't quite fit into the episode, but we set it aside because it was so cute. We knew we'd have to trot it out at some point, and that point is now. It is a clip from the interview that we did with Julie Klausner in 2017 before her amazingly hilarious show, Difficult People, was canceled from Hulu. Man, I'll, I don't know if I'll ever get over that. Why did they cancel it? It was so good. Anyway, uh, before Julie Klausner left the studio that day, I wanted to talk to her about cat stuff. She has a little tuxedo cat, and I have a little tuxedo cat, and we wanted to talk to each other about our cats. So we did, and it was so cute. And here is that clip of Julie Klausner from Difficult People and I talking about our cats. One other thing that I want to thank you for, I feel like I'm just thanking you for many it's things. It's like Alanis Morissette. <laughs> thank you, yeah. Julie. Thank you, India. <laughs> um, I hadn't fully realized myself as a crazy cat lady <laughs> uh, when I first started listening to How Was Your Week in 2012. Mm-hmm. I was living with a cat the cat was, uh, she's she's dearly departed, R.I.P. But she she was a great cat, and I have deep respect for that cat. She is my boyfriend's cat. Oh, he I see. She wasn't her. your cat. She yeah. was his cat. Got she it. was deeply obsessed with him. Aww. She attacked me a lot ah. when we moved in. And it took years for her to stop attacking me. And I, I appreciate and respect that we had many attack-free years Aww. before she passed, but took a, a long time for I'm us to get there. Sure. And during that time, I was listening to you talk about first Smiley Muffin. Yeah. And then your your gentleman now. My son. Jimmy Jazz. My tuxedo son. <laughs> and Jazz. I feel like when I finally adopted my kittens now and fell like fully like into oh, the K-hole of don't resist it. being yeah. a crazy cat lady like hole. never before. 
um, I had this background of you obsessing over your cats to mm-hmm. know that I wasn't alone and to be a sort of uh, a, a sign of of how to be the best crazy cat. Yes, <laughs> accept it. Do not fight it. Embrace I can't it fully. Fight it. There's no point. Embrace it fully. It's okay to be self-deprecating, but just so you know, this is who you are. Yeah. And the kitty verse is a very powerful magnet. If my boyfriend is home and I'm at work, yep. I will you call need and or text to ask what they're doing. Of course. And if it's cute, <laughs> you need to know. And if it's and then cute, like it's ever it. not cute, it better be cute. <laughs> I want to know how Jimmy Jazz is. What is he doing? Jimmy what is Jazz he thinking? Is, he's doing terrific. How he's is doing he feeling? great. He's feeling okay. He decided <laughs> to take shit on my floor last Sunday. Um. Um, but that was, I think, because he had to go to the vet on Friday for like a little skin thing. Oh. And that was his way of communicating to me. That it was Usually okay. he communicates like this. Mom! <laughs> he makes these like a horrific sounds in the morning uh-huh. to remind me to feed him chicken, which I've never once forgotten to do. Oh, yeah, really? Really, he really, like, he uses the, like, I'm in pain voice. <laughs> One time he got himself, like, stuck in a drawer and he Aww. used that voice, too, although it was way more blood curdling. Yeah. Oh, I got him out of there a second away. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> but, no, he's got all these, like, I mean, he's like a singer. He's like Michael Bublé. He's like, okay, I'm going into the chorus. I know which to use for this. I uh-huh. have this in my toolbox. But then he decided to poop on the floor, and that was disappointing. But yeah. I heard what he was trying to say. Yeah, you felt and, it. Um, and I was like, listen, buddy, I get it. I'm going to clean this up because I love you more than anybody. And um, it's for your own good. You're going to go to the vet again. What can I tell you? <laughs> you got antibiotics one week. Now you got to follow up for two weeks. I don't know what to say. I don't know what you're going to do after that follow-up, but I guess we'll find out. He's the best. He's a great cat. He's got, <sighs> like Even people who don't like cats come in and they're like, <gasps> because he's so strikingly handsome. He's very handsome. Wasn't that his handsome face on the poster for cats? Yes or no? On the poster for like hashtag cats? I feel like you had an episode. It was a black and white cat, but I don't think it was Jimmy. (laughs) Jimmy Jimmy refused to sign the release for that. He was like, I'm holding out for something better. And I'm like, I understand. I get it. I completely get it. No, he's 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 very strikingly handsome. I like to think of him if he were a human being, like maybe like a young Richard E. Grant. Oh, I see like it. A, they're like a Pierce Brosnan type. <laughs> oh my god! Because like I have I have cats. I'm pretty good at like assigning actors who would be playing my friend's cats. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> that is so. Yeah, good. and and Jimmy would definitely be that sort of Anglo erudite. Like, right? Oh, m- most certainly, he'd say. I'm going to ask you a question about my cat. Please do. And tell me what you think about it. Okay. So I have two cats, Velma and Irving, and they're they're from the same litter. They're brother and sister. Velma is very, like, totally, like, in charge, and she's the boss. Is she? And she um, spends a lot of alone time. She needs her alone time in various closets. Got it. Got it. Irving, like, I didn't see him for the first few months. He was very sick when we brought him home, and we nursed him back to health. And so he did a sort of a lot of hiding at the beginning. And then a few months in, he's a little over a year now, Mm -hmm. he started crawling into my arms (gasps) and sucking on the shoulder of my shirt as if he were nursing. Uh Uh-oh. Suck, 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 suck. Oh, no. And, like... It's his like soothing thing, and he like almost inaudibly purrs, and I rock him in my arms, and he sucks on my shirt. And Aww. I had a cat that used to do that. It's because they got taken from the mom too early. Because he lost his mom as a as a newborn. Oh my God. And so he's over a year old now, and he still does it. So what? Yeah. And like, should I be they're, discouraging? No, there are women who breastfeed no. their children until they're eight. Can I? Yeah, exactly. I've seen them breastfeed my cat. For the rest of his natural life, yeah. Do it. You know what? Tired. Making making biscuits when cats do I that kneading motion uh-huh. with their paw—that's to look for the nipple when they're blind as kittens, right? So that's what they do to their moms to find it. And you wouldn't discourage that behavior, yeah. no, definitely. As never long as he's discourage. not actually sucking and biting your nipple, yeah, he's, he's not sucking or biting. Teeth. And you're fine. It is the shoulder of my garment. He doesn't Does he even tear do it? it. But you know what? No. That that Does he, like rend- he, make, he has he no nipple guys. Rend the garment. He makes biscuits around. He love you. While he, around his head, while he's sucking on the shoulder. That of my sounds shirt. Pre- you precious. His, you were his mother, and then I like you know I ovulate. That's normal. <laughs> That's normal. Now you're just bragging. <laughs> no, but I mean, I want you know, like if you had like a two year old child, you would be like, hey, like maybe you. should Oh, I, I'm the wrong person to ask about that. No, I, I don't, don't either. <laughs> I have kittens instead. Yeah, but I'm just like, is should I be like, Irv, you need to grow up? I don't want to. No, I don't you think mom so. your own, I don't your own so. way. It also seems like because he was so hidey that yeah. maybe like this is his like sort of coming out of his shell. You don't want to discourage that because, yeah. you know, maybe he'll start hiding again. I don't know. It, this seems completely harmless. It seems like you enjoy it. 
oh my god i enjoy it almost yeah, too much let him do it uh, that's why i'm harm. sort of like am i am no i harm. enabling no. no the great thing about cats is they never need to grow up you never need yeah. to be like it's time for you to go to college <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true but i do want to give him a cat mitzvah when he's a man i think you should and i think i think he needs to learn his you know torah portion it's yeah, not just about the party torah. it's not just about the party <laughs> it took me months it's gonna take him years yeah you have to earn the party right right exactly it's not just a birthday party there you have it, folks. That is our clip show of the very best moments from 2018. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. We really, really, really appreciate it. We love making the show for you. We love getting your feedback on iTunes. Uh, please keep listening in 2019. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep making it. Until next time. Mwah. <laughs>